So uh, here in the room, I put the New American Standard Bible up there on the screen for you guys. Uh, that is a more literal translation, much like the ESV, which is what I usually teach from. But the Bible program that I have on my, uh, my computer up there doesn't have ESV on it. So I just went ahead and went with NASB. But that's kind of good for you because then you guys can see that there are indeed subtle differences even with um, these more literal trans translations. Oh, I'm in Second Peter. That's the problem. In my Bible program here, my ESV on my, my Bible program on my computer, for whatever reason, it's in Second Peter. Second Peter is really good too, by the way. Um, it's, it's really, it's very different from First Peter. In fact, um, uh, Second Peter is, has, shares a lot of uh, perspective and even, even some phraseology from Jude, which is one of the shortest books in the Bible. Uh, Jude is the last book before Revelation. So I taught from Second Peter a ways back um, in this church. But uh, yeah, we're going to take a look at this. Last week, um, we were in First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And I think what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going I'm to go back to that passage and do just a quick review uh, so that we're kind of in context and we know where we're coming from. Remember that originally uh, the Bible didn't have chapters and verses, right? And these are actually letters that were written uh, to various groups of people. So just imagine you writing a letter. You don't divide it up into chapter one of my letter, chapter two, you know. But if you wrote a long letter to someone, um, you would just write the letter and your thoughts would flow. And so that's why we need to back up. We, we shouldn't be uh, isolated so closely to a verse or even a passage that we forget the overall context. It's kind of like being in a dark room with a flashlight and just shining it on your feet. You don't see anything else that's around you in the room if your eyes are down here and you're just walk. So you can see all this right here in front of you, but you don't know what's the, what the rest of the room looks like. So um, usually if you're in a familiar place, like uh, you're at your house or something and it's dark, you may be able to probably are able to move around because you already have it mapped out in your mind. You kind of know where the furniture is and so forth. Of course, you're surprised when your little brother leaves Legos on the floor or something like that. But, um, you know, you have the room basically mapped out. And it's interesting because your brain will actually do that even in a, a, an unfamiliar room. You, if, you're able to, if you're able to look up with a flashlight and shine it around the room, right, then when you kind of go down to your feet or if you have to turn it off or if the lights go off or something like that, you, you have this map of the room in your mind. You know, you kind of have things figured out. So it's like, well, where's the door? And that happens a lot like with our phones these days. You know, we have the light on our phone or I have this really cool, uh, really cool keychain. Um, all right, so this is, these are my keys, all right? So if I want to get to a key, then I just pull it out and there are my keys right there. But this also has a flashlight on the end of it. And it also has, um, it's uh, uh, 
uh, it has, are you familiar with the, the, the uh, tracker called the tile? You can put tiles on all these different things and other people that have tile, if they have the app on their phone, it'll let you know if it's near one of their phones, but bare minimum, your tile will tell you where it was last, right? So that's kind of because I have a tendency to just lay my keys down so I can get on my phone and okay. Um, and then it has like a, a beep on it where you can set it off. If you're, you know, if you're anywhere near it, you can set it off and it'll guide you to it. So why am I, I bringing all, uh, I bring all that up? Because believe it or not, the idea of context is not too far off from that. When you study the Bible, um, it's different than just reading a verse and saying, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's very nice. I, I like what that says, or wow, that's, you know, profound. That's very helpful. But when you study the Bible, you need to understand the context. And there are multiple levels of context, but the first context that you really need to understand and focus on is the context of the writing itself. So um, beginning at the beginning in first Peter, uh, he's, writing to a group of dispersed Christians throughout um, really the regions where the Apostle Paul first spread the gospel on his missionary journeys, okay? Um, so Asia Minor, Galatia, I won't get into the geography here, but he's focused on this region. So the idea is that this letter, all five chapters, now that we have it divided into chapters, is going to be passed around to all of these uh, groups of Christians. Now, understand in the first century, there was no such thing as a megachurch. Every church was our size. And by and large, they met anywhere they could meet. But a lot of times they would meet in larger homes. And uh, in fact, this church in part started in my house. Uh, you know, I had a, uh, a home on Baltimore Avenue over in Richardson. And I leased it with the specific intent, excuse me, of doing church stuff there because it had this really cool open living room area where people could, you know, sit around and see each other and so forth. And so we had all of our meetings there except for our worship, our worship meeting we did on Sunday nights at uh, various hotel ballrooms. We would just rent out a hotel ballroom and invite everybody to come in and the band would set up and, you know, we would do worship there. So, um, but in the first century, uh, Christianity was not even legal in the Roman Empire. Um, at first, it was considered a subset of Judaism, and Judaism was allowed, although uh, the Jews were variously persecuted. In fact, in, I want to say, 48 AD, uh, they were cast out of Rome because of uh, problems that were being had there. When the Apostle Paul went to Philippi, um, it was the most Gentile city. It had no synagogue and virtually every major uh, city had a synagogue, which is the equivalent of a Jewish church in that city. But Philippi was a Roman, it started out as a Roman colony and it didn't even have a synagogue. So the apostle Paul always started with the folks that were worshipers of God. And typically that meant the synagogue and the Jewish people. And so he would go to the synagogue in that city first he would introduce Jesus to them, give them an opportunity to receive the gospel. And then uh, he would go out and, you know, invite the Gentiles that, that were willing to listen and the church spread and it would be in house to house. So this letter would have been copied, like physically copied, right? 
and sent around to all of these various house churches, which, as I said, would have been, you know, about our size. And there would have been a number of those churches in the same city. And there would be an overseer over all of those individual meetings, you know, local churches. And that overseer, there's another name for that, which is bishop, right? There's another name for that, which is pastor, right? A shepherd. So a pastor, an overseer, a bishop. There would usually be a group of elders, um, and uh, they would be responsible for overseeing the, uh, you know, the, the church's needs. There would be uh, servants or deacons that would administrate uh, the various uh, things that they did. So that started off in Jerusalem when uh, the Jewish widows and the Greek widows were in a dispute over uh they were the, the church cared for the widows because there wasn't any sort of social welfare system in Rome. And so one of the main things that, that the church became known for is caring for orphans, caring for babies. It was a common Roman practice that if you had a child and you didn't want it, they, there was a, literally a hill outside of Rome where they would just leave babies out to die. So typically, ladies, unfortunately, it happened a lot that if it was a female child, they wanted a male child, they would just leave it out there to die. It's just, we don't want it, right? So, yeah, we're really not too far away from that here in this country, right? Um, there's all sorts of reasons that people have abortions and you know don't want their babies and so forth. But churches, the Christian church, stepped in and took care of those babies, and took care of orphans, and took care of sick people. Like, they didn't want anything to do with people that had leprosy, right? Kind of reminds me, honestly, of, you know, the way people are treating those that test positive for COVID these days. It's like, ah, stay away from me. We're all going to die, you know, whatever. But there have to be people that care for people who are sick. There have to be people that, and they didn't have the, the knowledge that we have about, you know, viruses and uh, you know, bacteria and antibiotics and, you know, how to protect yourself from all that. Christians just plowed in and took care of people. That's how they, they were known for that, right? So um, Christians are supposed to stand out. That's why this church is called Life Well. Live life well, living your life well, showing the way we're supposed to live. Yes, let's talk about it. But let's, let's show that. Let's demonstrate that. Let's shine our light. Jesus said that we're like a city set on a hill, right? Uh, you can't hide that. If it's a city set on a hill, the lights are just going to you know, show. So it's interesting. Um, I subscribe to the, oh, I, don't just, I follow NASA on Instagram. I guess that's what you're supposed to say, all right? And so a lot of times they'll show these really cool pictures, you know, of the earth um, and on my uh, on my Apple TV, the uh, the screensaver is set to show all of these really cool images. So I'll see some of them are like are under the ocean with you know dolphins swimming or something like that, and you know, or it's obviously a drone shot with you know in like 4K or 8K flying over some cool city or something. But there's space shots as well, and you can see the lights of these cities from space, and they're so bright. And then you can see the parts of the world that are not developed, you know, that don't have electricity like that. So one of the 
clear examples of this is the difference between North and South Korea. South Korea is just lit up, man. I mean, it is just bright. North Korea is just dark. I, you know, it's just when it gets night, it's just night. So we're to be the light. We're to be the city. Your, your, your eyes are drawn to the light. Right. We don't have to jump up and down and scream and yell and say, hey, I'm a Christian and you're all condemned and going to hell unless you believe like me. No, you just live the life that you're supposed to live right out there in the open so people can see it. Just love people and live and and be what we're supposed to be. Right. So that's what Peter is seeking to encourage these folks um, because they're going through suffering. Now, we could say we're going through suffering right now, but it is absolutely nothing like these folks were going through. Okay. I mean, we've had, uh, you know, some of our freedom curtailed in other parts of the country. Um, you know, they're, they've had it curtailed for longer. Um, in California, they've turned back around and sh- they're shutting everything back down again. They had a multi-phase opening plan, which is what our governor has had. Our governor froze the plan. They rolled it back. So basically, churches that were allowed to meet are now no longer allowed to meet. And the governor of California has also said that churches... Uh, when and if they do meet, they're not allowed to sing. Not real sure you can get away with that. So there are a couple of churches suing right now. Be interesting to see the outcome of it. Now I understand the the reasoning behind it, right? I don't. I, I think civil liberties override this in this case. But when you have multiple people together in a room and they're singing, it it creates an aerosol effect. It's different than coughing or sneezing where these big droplets come out of your mouth and just hit the ground, right? If we're all singing, you know, or, or worshiping or whatever, and we're, we're kind of close together, it creates this aerosol effect in the room and it can cause more infections. So this is where you've got to look at, okay, well, I understand where he's coming from, but does he really have the right to tell people that they cannot sing? To me, what you need to do, and I think that this is, this is a very American proposition. You need to let people make up their own minds. You can't tell people how to live. You can't force people to do what you believe they need to do because nobody has to go to church. You don't have to. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not like school, right? School is compulsory. So it makes sense that they're, you know, trying to figure out exactly what to do with school. Uh, Pastor Craig was uh, we do our karate club here on Tuesdays. And Pastor Craig was standing right here on the stage, as a matter of fact, last night. And uh, he is now an assistant principal at a uh, middle school or junior high over in uh, either Mesquite or East Dallas. I'm not exactly sure where it is. It's Ann Richards Middle School, something like that. Um, Ann Richards is a former governor of Texas long ago. Um, But in any event, he was telling the children that, you know, he met with the other principals for the first time face-to-face yesterday or day before yesterday, I guess, uh, one or the other, and that they're just really, really trying to figure out what to do with kids, but they really care for the kids and they're trying to do the very best thing that they can, you know, so that we can, you're not going to stop the spread. You hear this, stop the spread. You're not, that's not possible, right? You can slow it. And we are. Right. If we were just wide open and just doing everything the way we normally did things and having baseball games and football games and thousands of people gathering together, it would be going like wildfire. Right. So we've we've slowed it and we can't slow it, but you're not going to stop it. So but we need to think through those things and be wise about those things and be careful about those things. But 
you know, what we're going through is absolutely nothing like what these people were dealing with. I mean, you're talking about a time period when, you know, Christians are arrested and, and treated like common criminals. Now, in some cases, uh, there are instances in which Christians are being persecuted, even in this country, to that degree. I'm just saying, by and large, you and I are not experiencing that. We're experiencing, by comparison, minor inconveniences, right? And even those who uh, end up positive with COVID, um, most people, 80% of people, either are asymptomatic or experience very minor symptoms, 80% of people. The problem is there are 20% of people that get really sick. There are about 5% that get really, really sick, have to go to the hospital. And then there's about 1% that end up dying. And so this is why we're, we're concerned. So why do I bring all this up? Because I think we have a way of comparing what we're dealing with. We're talking about suffering. And that was why I chose to teach through this book originally, because first Peter is really about testing and it's about suffering and how we go through suffering and that we realize that suffering is not just, you know, God being unjust or uncaring, right? Um, You know, people have, people have, I think, at least three uh, thoughts about God that are wrong when they go through suffering. They say, God just isn't there. There's just, there is no God, right? Now that may be, I'm an agnostic and I'm not saying that God doesn't exist at all. I'm just saying he's not there. He's not available to us, right? Or God just isn't fair. Now, if we saw that God was clearly causing everything, if he was the one that was in immediate control over everything, then it's obvious he's not fair. But that's not the case. We are separated from God. And this is why we can say in our mind, God just isn't there or God just isn't fair because we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world that is separated from God and his immediate care and control. But you can choose to invite him into your life to take control of you and to take care of you. And he will respond to that. You can choose to pray for other people. We prayed for Jacob. Jacob is healing well. I was praying for Miss Mary this week. She was undergoing some difficulty. She had to go to the dentist yesterday, right? And I fasted and prayed at the outset of this, that people wouldn't get this, that people's finances wouldn't be affected. And even though a number of our people have now tested positive, nobody has been adversely affected financially, nor has their health been adversely affected. You can, God has chosen, even though our world is fallen, our world is in rebellion, our world has turned its back on God. God has chosen to continue to hold his hands out and offer to help. But you have to believe the third thing that people say. People say, God just isn't there. God just isn't fair. Or God just doesn't care. But Jesus' death on the cross is clear demonstration that God cares. He sent his son to prove his love for us by dying on the cross for our sins. See, we're separated from God because of sin. Sin separates us from God. That's the nature of sin right? Sin is, is falling short of God's glory and God's plan. It's you and I going our own way, doing our own thing, 
Um, one of the most difficult books in the Bible to read is the book of Judges. There's just weird stuff in the book of Judges. People were doing some wacky things. But it, you find out why. This was Israel, and God had revealed himself to Israel, and he'd shown them his plan to bless them and to give them this land that they were now living in. But they weren't paying attention to God. They turned their backs on God. He said, every, it says on two, two major occasions in Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. So in other words, they didn't recognize any authority over them. They were just doing what they wanted to do. Gosh, we're seeing that in our country right now, right? As I said, all authority is moral authority. Um, you know, I don't make it a practice, no matter who's in office, of uh, speaking disparaging things about the president. I didn't do it with Clinton. Uh, I, I didn't do it with either Bush. Uh, I didn't do it with Obama. I'm not going to do it with Trump. But, uh, you know, Trump is somebody who has angered enough people and made fun of enough people that his authority is not respected. And so people are saying, well, that's not my president. There's no authority. I'm not recognizing that authority. Right. Or I'm, you know, I don't recognize the authority of, you know, the legislature, you know, I don't recognize these people's authority and I'm not paying attention to what we've clearly seen in the scripture here. In fact, the reason that I told you that, you know, I started wearing a face mask, uh, even though I was initially opposed to it, was because I looked at this very book that we're reading, this letter that we're reading, and it said very clearly, submit yourself to every human institution, realizing that governors and those who are put in power are there to praise those who do good and punish those who do evil. So as long as the authority is moral and it's praising those who do good and punishing those who do evil, it is to be respected. And this, and if you go back several weeks uh, when I was talking about protests, and it was interesting, I talked about it right before the George Floyd protests broke out everywhere. But protest is legitimate when you are protesting authority that is doing evil, right? But if we're going to protest and we're going to do it in a, in a way that is legitimate, that is effective also, um, we need to do it like Martin Luther King Jr. did. I mean, he changed the country. You know, there's a lot being said about racism now, but it is nothing like this country was in the 50s and 60s, right? Now, I'm old enough to remember the 60s, and um, I don't remember the, the horrific things that are spoken of by those that are older than me and that went through those things. What I remember was being in grade school, and there was, a, there was just a lot of very strong teaching about integration and treating other people with equality and so forth. So that's just the way I grew up. I never thought about treating anybody any other way. But there are those who were raised in a different time in our country when the norm was to, you know, separate people out and treat other people that weren't of your race as being less than you, lower than you, and so forth. And uh, MLK was largely the reason that the heart of this country was changed. You don't change people's hearts by beating them over the head. Now that's something for you and I as Christians to realize. You're not going to change anybody's heart by pounding on them with your self-righteous argument, whether that's an argument from the left or from the right, right? Um, they're just, they're not going to go that way. In fact, the scripture says the kindness of God leads us to a change of heart, leads us to repentance. 
God's kindness is what changes our heart. It's your love and your kindness to other people. And I have, I'm talking to myself right now, right? Because I get into debates with people and I, it, gets, it can get strong sometimes. But I've come to see that it just, you can be right, but you can be just dead right. Because you don't win anybody. And we need to, again, it's the same idea of the city sit on the hill. You know, you need to shine your light so that everybody can see. Jesus also said, we're the salt of the earth, right? I mean, salt makes almost everything better. I mean, you even make ice cream with salt. <laughs> well, it makes it cold, but still, I'm just saying it's useful for that. But have you ever had eggs with no salt on them? They're terrible. Have you ever had popcorn with no salt? terrible. There's just so many things that are just, you know, and there are things that are just so bland and you add a little bit of salt and we're like, oh, well, no. But it's interesting. You taste the salt that it's there, but the salt is bringing out the flavor in the food. It's such a cool, I don't know, do you call it a spice? Is salt called a spice? Okay. But it's so cool because it brings out the, you know, the flavor in the other. Now, if you put too much, all you taste is the salt. Guess what? That's when Christians all hoard together in one place and they don't spread out. We're supposed to spread out, right? We're supposed to add savor to society. Salt is also a preservative, right? It's before there are refrigerators, you, you preserve food with salt. You preserve meat with salt. That's how you keep it from rotting. That's awesome. Jesus said, we're the salt of the earth. Jesus said, we're the light of the world. We've got to spread out. We've got to be that. That means that we're going to go through some of the same things that everybody else is going to go through. Yes, I can call God to protect me, but I've got to believe that he cares. I've got to know that he's not unfair. He's willing to get involved in my life. And I've got to, I've got to believe that he is available and he will be there to those who call him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? So let's go back up to this. Um, We'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to go back up and read these other verses first. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, that's, there's the gospel right there, right? Jesus suffered for our sins. He was righteous. We're unrighteous. And he did that to bring us back to God. He was put to death in the flesh, that is in the physical but then he was made alive in the realm of the spirit, right? Um, he was literally raised, but this is a new body, a resurrection body. Uh, the first night that Jesus appeared to the disciples, they were in a room with the doors locked because they were scared that the same thing that happened to Jesus getting arrested and crucified was going to happen to them. And Jesus is just there in the room with them, right? So this is Jesus now you know, dwelling back in that set of dimensions, if you want to call it that, right? The heavenlies that permits him to move back and forth between our world and that world, between that, the spiritual realm, the spiritual and our realm. But he had a body that could be touched, right? He ate fish in their presence. He ate bread in their presence. That's awesome. So, you know, we die, one day we're going to be raised. If you have Christ in you, you have the gift of eternal life. You're raised to live with him for eternity. But it's not some weird, ghostly experience. We're not going to all be floating around in these sort of semi-transparent bodies, you know, like weird ghost movies or something like that. You know, and you try to reach out and touch each other, but we can't touch each other because we're like not really 
physical. No, it's a it's a it's a renewed physical body, if you will. So when you say spiritual, it sounds like something that just it doesn't have any substance. No, this is spiritual, but it is substantial, right? It has a substance, just a different kind of substance. And this is the same thing that we find, you know, when angels appeared in the in the presence of people, they appeared as, you know, usually looked like human beings, right, in physical bodies. And they could cause, they, they could bring about effects. That doesn't happen if you're some non-corporeal, you know, ghostly, cloudy something floating around, okay? So this is what he's made alive in the spirit or by the spirit or in the spiritual realm in which that is in the spirit. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is talking about those that are, that were dead because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. So it's using uh, those that were condemned on the earth uh, in Noah's era uh, as the example of those who were in what the Old Testament calls Sheol, the realm of the dead, right? This shadowy realm where people await judgment. Then he goes and he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? The ark being carried through the water. The ark was saved from the condemned earth. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body. In other words, Baptism doesn't wash away sin. Some people think that baptism, okay, well, baptism washes away sin. That's not what it's for. It was a, it was a cleansing ritual among the Jewish people. But baptism is a symbolic representation of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which happens within us when the Spirit of God comes and resides in us. We spiritually are renewed, right? Our old life is put away, put in the grave, and a new life is raised to await uh, eternal yeah, eternity in the presence of God. He says, no, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but as, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. In fact, it's not even Christ's death that saves us, it's Christ's resurrection. So Jesus had to go all the way through that. If he had just died for our sins, then that would result in forgiveness, but we would still have this curse of death hanging over us. He had to conquer death, right? So when he conquered death, then that permits us to have the hope of eternal life, to have the hope of a resurrected body like him. Then he says, verse 22, who has gone into heaven, that is Christ, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Now we continue, and that's, it's up there. Um, in fact, I'm going to read the, the one up there because I just read you the ESV, and it's going to be different here. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them to the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Okay? So now let's, uh, let's take that apart and look at it just a little bit here. Okay? Um, let me get down to that place in my notes. There it is. So when, when we suffer in our flesh, we can see it as an opportunity to identify with Christ's sufferings and overcome sin as the result. In other words, suffering has a purpose. Suffering's not pointless. So I don't need to rush to the conclusion that God just isn't there, God just isn't fair, or God just doesn't care. Suffering has a purpose. Um, verse 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself, prepare yourself with the same way of thinking. Okay, so this is a word that means to have the same mind. It's literally arm yourself with the same mind. So with the same purpose, with the same perspective, with the same attitude, with the same intention. It can be translated in all of those ways. So in other words, I need to be ready to suffer along with Christ and realize that when I suffer, and most often this isn't just, uh, you know, suffering like as the result of being sick, for example. This is suffering through trial and temptation. Temptation, when I suffer through temptation, it means I'm saying no to something that something in me wants, right? And, you know, this can be a variety of things. You, you, could, be, you could be on a diet, right? And, you know, I, I was at Intrinsic the other night, and I almost never eat desserts except for I have some, uh, I have some keto ice cream, which doesn't have any sugar in it. You know, so I had some of that earlier today, actually. Pretty good. Um, but I don't normally eat regular desserts, even though I love cake, I love pie, and I love, love, love cheesecake. But I have to be careful with that. In my family, by my age, both my granny, which is my grandmother on my dad's side, and my dad um, had developed severe type 2 diabetes and stopped being able to walk. So I have to be careful, right? And I'm also trying to, you know, keep uh, reasonably lean, uh, not nearly as lean as I was last year, but oh well. Uh, we just have to decide what we want, don't we? And I've just decided that it's really too hard to stay that skinny, so I'm going to be like this, and I'm fine, all right? But I'm going to stay healthy, uh, as healthy as I can stay. But I was in Intrinsic the other night, and they had this, what did they call it, margarita cheesecake? And I went, oh, no. So earlier in the day, I resisted temptation, went home, came back later that evening, and there it was, still on the counter up there saying, Daryl, come here. So I just gave in and I you know, just ate the cheesecake, so it was good. Okay, so that's minor. I'm making light of something. Temptation can be, you know, temptation to do something illegal. Temptation to do something that you know is immoral. Temptation to violate your, you know, your, your Christian faith. And uh, yeah, the, the world permits many things. That if I'm a believer in Christ, I'm not going to participate in. 
And I can demonstrate in each instance that these are not just arbitrary rules that have been laid down by an old dead book, the Bible, but that God has a purpose for his law, just like there is a purpose behind the laws of physics that govern the universe, there's a purpose behind the moral laws that God laid out in the Bible, right? Um, but nonetheless, that doesn't stop my flesh. My flesh, your flesh, is not just your skin, okay? But it is your natural inclinations, your natural desires. That is you in that fallen world, in that separated state, in that apart from God state. And this is why I have to have this mindset of the spirit that says, no, I'm not that way anymore. I have died, baptism, buried with Christ in baptism. I have been raised, raised with Christ to walk a new life. There is a new me inside. So I love, there's a song by this, there's a band called um, Stars Grow Dim. And I think it's called that because it was originally a pop group. And the guy either became a Christian or his faith just kind of became enlivened. And he chose to steer the group away from singing pop music to singing uh, more worship-oriented music. But the, the guy's name that <clears throat> really does all the singing and I think writing is a guy named Chris Cleveland. I love everything he does, okay? And if you listen to his music, you wouldn't think somebody like me, my age, would like that because it's a very pop-sounding, you know, style. But his lyrics just are absolutely so encouraging, right? And he has a song that has a, has a lyric in it. I think it's the title of the song well, uh, as well. And the song is, I am who you say I am. I'm not who I feel like I am. I'm not who other people say I am. I am who you say I am. I have a new identity. So when I'm in Christ, I'm a new person. I'm a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's how I overcome temptation. So here it is. I'm going to have to suffer through this. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, with the same perspective, with the same purpose for whoever has suffered in the flesh. And when it uses this term suffered, it is indicating every time suffering unto death, right? So I have to go through that. Scripture says, this is the Apostle Paul, uh, <clears throat> and uh, he says, no temptation has taken you but such as is common to human beings. God is faithful and will not allow the temptation to go beyond what you are able to bear. But he will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. You have to endure it. You have to go through it. So there are plenty of things, um, you know, with temptation, I can identify with the temptation and say, no, that's just me. I'm just an angry person. I'm just uh, a person who likes to get high or get drunk or, uh, you know, get involved in sexual immorality. That's just who I am. And when I identify with that, then, of course, I'm going to pursue that course. And it seems to alleviate the pressure, the suffering. 
So one way to alleviate the, the, the suffering of temptation is just give in every time. Then there's eh, no suffering. But there are consequences to that, right? There are consequences to that. There are consequences to being addicted to chemicals. There are consequences to being addicted to sexual immorality or even something as apparently on the surface as healthy as relationships. There are people that are addicted to a relationship, right? And so they end up essentially emotionally suffocating their partner. They can't figure out why the relationship is not healthy. They can't figure out why... You know, it's not the way it was when they first started or whatever, because there's there's so much pressure and so much dependency or codependency. Right. The worst kind of relationship is when there's someone that is dependent in a relationship with someone that is codependent. A codependent person is someone who needs to be needed. This is the temptation for those of us who are in helping professions. So pastors, counselors, teachers. Right. You need to be needed. You want to be wanted. And so. But it's a dependency to have other people depend on you. And then there are people that are just dependent who need somebody. And what we all have to find out is that we are really dependent, but we need to shift that dependency to the God who can handle the weight of it. Even those of us that are ruggedly independent, and I'm like that, find that there are various dependencies that we're actually leaning on. And I have to be willing to share that dependency and let the, let the, the Lord be my Lord. So rather than giving into temptation as a way of alleviating then suffering, which results from denying self. And this, by the way, this is one of the things that is helpful uh, with fasting. Fasting is saying no to me at the elemental level. It's food, right? Now, I did all the fasting that I want to do for this entire year. I did 23 days of fasting and it was hard. Um, but you're constantly saying, no, 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 no. I'm hungry. No, no, no. Now I know I've heard this rumor that, you know, when you fast for a long period of time, pretty soon you're not hungry anymore. No, <laughs> not for me. It comes and goes, but it's the same thing. It's a gnawing, gnawing, gnawing. You know, something in the back of you that just, oh, man, you know, because your body is like, hey, dude, you're killing me. Hey, Smalls, you're killing me. No, literally, you're killing me. Okay, but we come to find out that, believe it or not, fasting is actually healthy if it's done in a healthy way. Right. Because your cells actually start taking out the garbage. It's called autophagy, which means self-eating, which sounds disgusting, I realize. But what the cells are doing is they, they, they start feeding on all of the, the junk and getting rid of the, the junk in the cell. And so you actually, when you go through a fast, you end up healthier on the other side of the fast. Now, if you don't do it right, you can end up more unhealthy. But I think one of the primary purposes for fasting is to learn to say no to me, right? To self. Because when I can do that, then these other temptations, you know, Oh, well, no big deal. I mean, I, you know, I didn't eat for this period of time. So, you know, saying no to a piece of cheesecake is not a big deal. Saying no to, you know, going to this website or that website or responding in a harsh way to that person. No, that's good. I'm good. I don't have to do that. I'm fine. Okay. So I identify with Christ and his death, burial and resurrection. Okay. So there's no excuse. We can't go on living like pagans without restraint. Grace doesn't equate to a license to just do whatever you want. Now, grace is how God receives us, right? 
God doesn't say you perform and then I will come alongside you and I will reward you, right? That's natural religion. Natural religion is you do this, this, and this, and the deity will reward you. You give these offerings and then, you know, the God that you believe in is going to reward you. It's not the way it is. God offers himself to us. That's grace, right? Um, it has been said that a good way to understand grace is to turn it into a, uh, a crossing. G-R-A-C-E. G-R-A-C-E. How's that? Right? God's riches at Christ's expense. God offers what he has to you simply because he chooses to, not because you earn it. That's good news, man. But then the Apostle Paul says, so... Since we've got grace, should we go on in sin so that grace may just increase more and more and more? He said, no, heaven forbid, may it not ever be. And then he goes into this, don't you understand that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we might no longer be slaves to sin. Knowing this, I reckon it, I account it, I realize it, that I have gone through this process. But still, when I encounter a trial, a test, temptation, there is suffering that is involved. And there is this process of rethinking how I'm going to go through it and how I'm going to look at it. Right. And so that's what this verse is saying here. Okay. Um, Then he says, So to live the rest of the time in the flesh, that is in the natural, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So that's the purpose is for me to stop living for the, the, the lusts of the flesh, the natural desires of the flesh. All right. But to live for the will of God. And then he says, for the time is past for the time that is past suffices. There's, there's enough time. He said that you, you've spent doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, here, the Gentiles just refers to the unsaved world, the the lost world, okay? Living in, now I'm reading from ESV, and NASB is up here, so you'll see subtle differences. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Let's take those apart. Sensuality, that's the word asylgia in Greek. This means living a life without moral restraint. You don't have any principles, right? Your only rule is to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Party hardy, whatever. That you just live a life without moral restraint. Um, there, there's an old way of looking this. Um, this, this was, these were actually laws that were on the books, and they may still be on the books, but they're obviously not enforced, called lewd and lascivious conduct. Have you ever heard of these words? Lewd and lascivious, right? Lewdness is offensive public displays physically, okay? So, you know, if a male were to walk out without any pants on and any underwear on, just walk around, that's lewd, okay? Lascivious is just, is just license, right? That you're just 
you're living in a licentious way. You're, you're giving yourself license to do whatever you feel like doing, no matter what other people think. And again, this is what our society is coming to. This invariably leads to sexual perversion. And again, this is that phrase that I related to you earlier from judges. Every man did what was right in his own, own eyes. Um, it's a central sin in our culture. The next word in ESV is translate. Uh, he translates it passions, but Oh, okay. It went off. <laughs> I know what happened. I, I let, I let it run on battery on my computer. Um, because I wanted to run the battery down up there and the battery ran out. Uh, NASB, I will tell you, says, uh, says uh, lust here, right? It's the word epithumia. It means eager desire. It is often assumed to be negative, but it's, it's not necessarily. It can be used in a positive way. You can eagerly desire the will of God, right? You can eagerly desire uh, to do the good of, of your children or your wife or whatever, but it is typically associated with sexual immorality, but it means desire, longing, craving. Uh, and so here it is obviously referring to something that is negative. Well, it's obviously negative if it is something that God has forbidden, that violates uh, God's moral principles, God's law. But interestingly, you can even have an eager desire for something good, but when you elevate it too high so that that value is so close to your value of God, it becomes idolatrous and then it turns in on itself and becomes bad, right? So, you know, you could want to do a good job, um, you know, on your job with your career or whatever, but your career can become your God. You can want to please your husband. You can want to please your wife. You can want to have a good family or a good home. But when you elevate that to the place where it takes the place of God or even comes close to God, then it starts becoming foul, festering, stinking, right? It kind of reminds me of uh, God fed his people with manna, right? Bread from heaven, right? How all that worked, I don't know. But it was like dew that landed on the ground every morning and they collected it. And it was flaky, best way I could describe it from the way the Old Testament describes it. It was kind of like eating pie crust, <laughs> which I kind of like pie crust myself, right? But you could make it in all these different ways. You know, they, they did all these different things with it and so forth. Um, but they were told to only gather enough for one day. They were specifically told, do not gather more than you need. And this just is teaching dependence on God. Well, when it first started happening, people did what people do. They were like, well, I'm not going to listen to Moses. I'm going to go out and gather enough for my whole family. We're going to keep it here. By the next day, it stunk and bred worms. It was something good. But it was being handled in the wrong way. And it turned into something foul and something bad. That's really anything like this, right? And then there's, uh, there's two things that are related. They're separated in the, in the list here. Drunkenness and drinking parties, right? Drunkenness leads to dissipation, which is a wasted life. Uh, pe people often overindulge when they're in the company of others who are doing the same thing. So there's your drinking parties, that idea. So somebody that wouldn't normally get drunk, they're 
at a party and there's a bunch of people that are drinking like, no, here, have another one. Here's some trash can punch. Have this and have, have, have my shots. Hey, shot. Shots are the stupidest thing to do. They're just, by the way, I kind of like tequila myself. Okay. But I don't do tequila shots. Tequila is an alcohol that is slow to, it follows the profile of uh, the plant that it comes from and the sugar. Agave nectar is a low glycemic index sugar, right? That means that it is released into your bloodstream more slowly than table sugar, okay? Tequila, I don't know why it does. I, I, don't, I haven't figured this out yet, but tequila as an alcohol does the same thing. So this is why people will do shot, 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 tequila. I don't feel anything. And then they're like. <gasps> I had a young lady in our church for a while, and uh, she'd come from a really rough background and gone to a lot of drinking parties. And she, <laughs> she used to give her testimony. And she said, she said, I used to get so drunk, I didn't have a hangover. I had a drink over or a drunk over. Well, see your body will only process approximately one ounce of pure alcohol per hour. And this doesn't matter how big you are, right? The way you handle that alcohol will be dependent upon uh, how much you drink or have drunk in the past, because your body actually chemically alters itself after a period of time if you've drunk more alcohol so that it can handle it better. But your body will not process more than an ounce of alcohol per hour, period. It just won't. So this is why you'll see these, you know, these approximations, 12 ounces of beer equals four ounces of wine equals one ounce of 80 proof liquor, because it's approximately the same amount of alcohol that you're, you're processing. So when somebody has been at some party and they've been, you know, consuming jello shots, by the way, there's another dumb one, jello shot. This is just an excuse to kill brain cells, man. You're just destroying yourself, right? But this is what happens. We do stupid stuff when we're with other people, right? You might never do any kind of drug, but you're with these people and they're like, no, try this. You know, oh, seriously, try it. You know, okay, well, I'll try it with you type of a thing, right? So drunkenness is just dependency upon that feeling, upon that, uh, you know, that need to, to, whatever it is, buzz, relax, whatever you're, you're thinking. Okay. But this idea of drinking parties is that, you know, people are kind of like egging each other on. And this is when people do stupid stuff, right? This is when people get in trouble. This is when people, so uh, one of my favorite stories, uh, Autumn will know this because I keep mentioning this over and over again, and it's on Amazon. So you should watch it. It's called the goldfinch. You should read the book. You should watch the movie. It's really, really good. Right. But at one point, uh, the, uh, the protagonist in the, in the story, in the book and in the film, his name is Theo. And <clears throat> he gets essentially kind of driven out of his home in New York. And he ends up in, uh, he's supposed to be in Nevada, on the outskirts of Las Vegas. Um, the film I found out was actually, the, the house that they were in was actually, it was actually filmed in New Mexico. But in any event, that's where he's supposed to be. And he meets up with this other guy whose name is Boris. And Boris is a man of the world. Okay, He's literally been all over the world. And he introduces Theo to some serious alcoholism. Right. Well, central to the story is this painting called The Goldfinch that uh, the, the story centers around a, a, a bombing 
this never actually took place, but in the story, a bombing that takes place at the Met in New York. And Theo ends up with the goldfinch. He's encouraged by a man that's dying to take it, take it, get it out of there. And he doesn't know he's, you know, just been through a bombing. So he shoves it in a bag. And so for my purposes, this painting represents Theo's mother or kind of his mother's soul um, because she died in the bombing. And so he takes it with him everywhere. Well, he finds out when he's older and he's moved back to New York, he's kept this painting wrapped up and he's kept it in a storage unit for years. But he finds out that Boris actually stole it from him when he was a teenager in Las Vegas. And so he hooks up with Boris again in New York and they go out on this big drinking drug binge and whatever. And then Boris tells him how sorry he is for what he did to him. And he said, sorry, oh, it's okay, whatever, you know. And No, I'm so, so sorry. And then he tells Theo, no, I took it. And Theo's like, no, 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 you didn't. He said, no. He said, and he calls him Potter because when Theo was younger, he wore these round glasses. So Boris's nickname for Theo was Potter. So he says, no, Potter. He said, you had a blackout drunk. He said, you showed me it when you overdo, right? Especially with alcohol. Dude, you do stuff you don't even remember. This is a good example. And I know it's just a story, but people have done far worse things than this. You will reveal things. You will do things. Ladies, young men will take advantage of you with this. This is one of their tools, right? And they're set. Get you to drink more and more and more. And the thing is, you've got to either not drink at all or you have to have the kind of self-restraint where you can set a limit and not cross it. Because you can't go by how you feel. You can't say, well, I don't feel drunk. The problem is the more inebriated you are, the more it numbs those feelings. You don't know. You don't know until you're so far over that you're just like, okay, something's wrong right now because I'm dizzy or I'm sick or, you know, whatever it is, the attendant uh, results of overdoing. But these are signs of those who are in the world. These are the things we should have departed from. All right. Um, I, I'm over time. I'm just going to mention these last ones and then we'll be done. Uh, he mentions orgies, sensuality, and lust are insatiable. So they lead to more and more extremes. One partner's not enough. The partner of the opposite gender is not enough. Now I need to have multiple partners, multiple partners of, you know, both genders. I have to, I'm pushing, 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 pushing these limits because it's insatiable. That means it's just not... God provides an answer that is, gives us satisfaction, gives us fulfillment. But worldly desires, whether they're socially acceptable or not, they're just natively, intrinsically insatiable. You just, it's an itch, you just keep scratching. And you stop, and then it itches again. And you stop, and then it itches again. And then it spreads, right? It's like having poison oak or poison ivy. The more you scratch it, the more it spreads and whatever, that's these insatiable things. So, uh, yeah, that's what these folks were, were dealing with. All right. And then lawless idolatry. Um, this takes us full, full circle back around to when we're talking about these protests that are going on. Um, those without restraint begin to commit illegal acts because they are illegal. You think these folks that are protesting in these cities and bashing in windows and spray painting and hurting people don't know that that's illegal? 
They're doing it because it's illegal. And that's what this is talking about. So you push and push boundaries at first because you don't want anything in the way of your desires, but then you just push the boundary because it's a boundary, right? So, um, and then it says they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. This is why we have to be careful who our friends are, who we hang around. Are these people that encourage you uh, in doing good or these people that encourage you in doing evil? We need to be around people that are positive, that encourage us to do good, right? So let's pray and we'll be done. Father, thanks so much for this opportunity. And uh, for those that are here, for those that are uh, on Zoom and on YouTube, I just pray, Father, that we'll take this with us and that we'll make necessary adjustments to our lives. And proud Jesus' name, amen.